Hi, this is Farah Osbeck. Welcome back to Military Law and Life Matters, the podcast that arms you with knowledge so you don't become a victim of injustice. So we're back with our podcast series where I interview attorneys who focus primarily on the military community. Many of them, but not all, are former military JAGs, and they all, though, have a passion for helping the military community. So I am very excited to be speaking today to attorney, Colonel U.S. Army retired Mark Bridges. Colonel Bridges opened up his law practice, his private law practice, Law Office of Mark Bridges, after a rewarding 30-year career as a military attorney in the United States Army Judge Advocate General Corps. Mark is a recognized expert in military justice and criminal litigation, and his law practice is exclusively focused on legal representation of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen who are under military investigation, facing adverse action, or pending trial by court-martial. During his military career, Mark served as U.S. Army's chief trial judge with a combined 10 years of service as a trial judge presiding over court-martial trials. Mark also had the privilege of serving as the staff judge advocate for the 25th Infantry Division, U.S. Army, Hawaii, where he served as the principal legal advisor to the division commander and supervised one of the Army's largest legal offices. In previous assignments, Mark served as the prosecutor, as a special assistant U.S. attorney, appellate defense counsel, chief of military justice, and senior defense counsel. He also had the privilege to teach as an associate professor in the Department of Law at the United States Military Academy at West Point. One of Mark's more interesting assignments came when he was a major assigned to the newly formed U Office of the Chief Defense Counsel Office of Military Commissions. This was the office established soon after the 9-11 att attacks to defend detainees at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, pursuant to President George Bush's military order establishing military commissions for the first time since World War II. Mark and his colleagues successfully challenged the military commission system established by the president in cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. I know you will enjoy this conversation with attorney Mark Bridges, and you will learn valuable information about military justice in the armed forces, and he will also give you great tips on how to protect yourself from injustice if you are a military member. So you have to give this a listen, and I will introduce you to Mark Bridges shortly. Hi, Mark. How are you? It's so good uh, speaking with you today. How are you doing? Hey, aloha, Farah. It's great to, great to be with you today on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, for all the listeners, uh, lucky um, Colonel Retired Bridges is, lives in Hawaii. So that's why he's lucky him living in paradise there. But um, so, Mark, I just want to tell you that, um, you know, I, you have such an extensive experience in military justice. You've had the, you know, I introduced you already to the, to the listeners including your 10 years as a military judge. So you have so much experience in military justice. I can talk to you for hours, but today I really want to focus on a few topics that I think will be very, of interest to the listeners and very important for them. So I want to start with one topic that's, um, you know, very prevalent today, and that's like social media. Like social media is everywhere. I mean, there's Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, I doubt there's anyone in the military who does not have some sort of social media account. So I, I think it would be so interesting to get your perspective on how social media may impact, may have impacted actually cases in the courtroom that you observed as a trial judge. So would you be able to get, share some examples of how um, you know, social media became relevant in the courtroom? Um, that would be really interesting to listen to, Mark. Uh, yes, Farrah, thank you for the question. And you're absolutely right. Uh, social media 
as everybody knows, is ubiquitous uh, in our lives. And uh, when it comes to the courtroom, it provides really a treasure trove uh, of information and potential evidence uh, in, in any type of litigation, including criminal trials. And so I, I think a good way to illustrate it is I'll give you an example uh, of a case that I presided over as a judge, uh, maybe a bit of a humorous uh, example. Uh, but this uh, case involved a junior enlisted soldier uh, who was pleading guilty to being disrespectful to his company commander. You know, and by the way, just as an aside for people who may not know, uh, you know, our criminal code in the military, the UCMJ, has uh, a lot of military-specific crimes, uh, which you don't find in, in other state codes. And this is one of them, you know, being disrespectful to your uh, superior officer. And so the charge in this case uh, actually stemmed from a rap song uh, that the accused had produced and performed all on YouTube uh, that was directed towards his company commander. And I'll tell you, fair, fortunately for you and your audience, I'm not going to attempt to sing this rap song. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, uh, but the lyrics uh, went like this. Why my boss ain't liking me? Because my boss ain't as fresh as me. Insecure like OMG. Your rank don't mean nothing to me. And so while I might take issue with the artistic quality of using the word me uh, as a rhyming mechanism in three of the, three of the four lines of this stanza, uh, the song was certainly disrespectful to his uh, commander. And not only uh, did he put it on YouTube, but he sent it to several people in his unit to watch. And so I tell you this story just to demonstrate, you know, the pitfalls of social media. And, uh, you know, and that's an extreme example of it uh, that actually formed the basis uh, of the criminal charge. And there are plenty of examples uh, of so uh, social media postings that uh, either form the basis of a charge or provide evidence that supports a criminal charge. And so for instance, I'm sure all your listeners have followed the news uh, on the folks who've been prosecuted by the federal government for their involvement in the January 6th uh, storming of the Capitol. Uh, you know, the FBI and the Department of Justice uh, in all of those cases made extensive use of social media postings uh, to both find and charge the people who were involved in that incident and then use it as evidence you know, against them in the criminal trials. And so social media uh, is used by litigators, uh, you know, as evidence uh, in, a, in a variety of ways. And I'll give you another example, uh, and that is uh, the use of social media in the courtroom uh, just as evidence. And in this instance, uh, social media was used to rebut claims of a crime victim. And so as background, you know, for your listeners, I'll let you know that when there's a conviction in a court-martial, I mean, and the accused is found guilty of committing a crime, you know, then a sentencing hearing is held immediately uh, after that conviction. And during that sentencing hearing, the victim of the crime is allowed to give what we call a victim impact statement, uh, which is usually an unsworn statement. It's not under oath. It's not subject to any cross-examination. So during one of the trials that I presided over as a judge in which the soldier was convicted of a sexual assault, the victim of that sexual assault gave an unsworn victim impact statement. And in her statement, the victim said that since the assault, she was no longer able to trust anyone, you know, and that she had withdrawn from social contact with her friends and with other people. And she also said that she was unable to date, you know, or be romantically involved with other people uh, as well after the incident. 
So the defense attorney, again, who had, you know, no ability to cross-examine her about, you know, what it was she said, uh, was able to introduce evidence from her Facebook account that showed her being happy and smiling, interacting with her friends at various places, you know, and even some evidence that she was, you know, romantically involved with other people. And so social media was used, as I said, in that case, as evidence to rebut claims uh, that the victim was making in her victim uh, impact statement. So there is a variety, uh, you know, of uses of, of social media uh, in the courtroom these days. Frankly, there's, I would say, in the majority of cases that I handle, you'd see some some form of it. Wow. Yeah. So so it's so social media is fair game then for all sides, not only the prosecutors, but by the defense, like in the case um, you just talked about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's surprising, you know, I, but I, I guess it's surprising and not surprising about how people, you know, for example, who maybe commit a crime and then discuss it on social media. It's like they, you know, I don't know. <laughs> they, they just don't think. But I, I guess that's kind of how these things happen. People go to trial because they don't think. So, Mark, can you tell me about or tell our audience, how about are there any ethical concerns um, with like, for example, trial attorneys like using start searching people's social media for evidence? Like what things have you encountered in that realm? Uh, yes, you're absolutely right again, Fair, that uh, there are professional responsibility, ethical concerns for uh, attorneys uh, involved in these trials. And it's really sort of a new, you know, just because just like social media being, you know, relatively new, uh, these issues uh, about ethical and professional responsibility when you're searching social media online, you know, are still developing, uh, still new themselves, but they're there have been several opinions issued. You know, the American Bar Association uh, has issued several opinions related to social media. And, uh, you know, each state and their bars uh, issue opinions as well, which sort of guide attorneys. So, you know, a lesson for attorneys out there certainly is you should be familiar with your state bar ethics uh, requirements when it comes to social media. Uh, but I'll talk just a little bit about that. Um, and it really comes from all sides. I'll, I'll start, I'll start with the judge uh, themselves, you know, judge, uh, judges uh, use of social media uh, is the subject of an opinion from the American Bar Association. And uh, even though judges, you know, can use social media, they really have to be careful uh, when they do it. You know, you got to avoid uh, violating the code of judicial ethics and anything that would undermine your independence, your integrity, your impartiality or even create the appearance of impropriety because, you know, in the law, we're always concerned not only about, you know, actual impropriety, but also, you know, the appearance of it. And so even though uh, the opinions that I've seen allow judges to use social media, uh, they, they certainly uh, tell judges to be very careful in what they do on social media. You know, you can't, now, one of the one of the big no nos, of course, would be commenting about a pending matter uh, before the judge, or any ex parte communications with an attorney. So you know, a one on one communication with another attorney in the case. You know, and the bottom line is, I was on the the bench for over ten years, Farah, and I effectively just stopped using social media uh, because I didn't want to run afoul of any of these uh, issues. Yeah. But that's, uh, you know, that's one thing from the judge perspective, but lawyers, you know, who are litigating, so if you're a prosecutor or defense counsel, you also have to be very careful about what you're doing on social media. You know, 
as I said, it's a treasure trove of, of potential evidence. So you probably are not being effective if you're not at least taking a look, you know, at what is on social media. Uh, but there are certain things that you can and you can't do. I think most people or most of these borrowers would agree that if the attorney is just looking at what's publicly available on somebody's social media account, then there is, there is no violation. That's perfectly fine to look at as what's publicly available. Uh, the problems come in when you try to contact somebody, especially a party that's represented uh, over social media, which an attorney is not supposed to do without contacting their attorney first, uh, or when you try to friend them uh, under circumstances where they don't understand that you're an attorney, you know, working on the case. And so, you know, lawyers can get themselves in trouble uh, by doing that. And really there's, uh, you know, they have to be familiar with what their own, you know, bar judicial uh, opinions say uh, about this sort of stuff. And then the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, if you're a defense attorney and you're representing clients, you also have to be very careful about uh, advising clients what to do with their own social media, because what's on social media is evidence just like any other evidence. And an attorney certainly couldn't tell, you know, a client to delete or destroy uh, things that are on social media, although they might be able to tell them to change their privacy settings. Uh, but you have to be very careful about that, uh, you know, when you're talking with a client. Yeah. Wow. Those are very interesting. Yeah. And the, the rap. <laughs> The rap uh, story was uh, interesting. Was that uh, was that the only charge in that case? Do, do you remember? I know you do so many cases. I know. Was it the disrespect to the commanding officer? Were there other charges? Just curious if you remember. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You might say, well, somebody being just prosecuted for that. I understand that. Uh, it was not the only charge in that case. I think that case involved some drug offenses uh, as well. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. Well, not you know, that that is still like serious. But, I, you know, I'm not sure if they would have taken it to court for that. Um, they probably would have got they probably would have definitely wanted to discharge the guy somehow, but, uh, or the, the guy or gal, but, uh, and I really yeah. like how you mentioned the appearance of impropriety because someone, you know, even though you may not have an intention of, you know, posting something that might, for example, I'm just thinking if you're a defense counsel and you somehow on social media is saying, Oh, someone just stole my, whatever, my computer. I hate, you know, I hate people who steal, you know, you just like, for, and then you have a client that you're given and you know, that's charged with larceny and that person sees that they're gonna be like, Oh, this person's not going to defend. I mean, that's just like a, maybe a stupid example, but it's just that appearance. Like how could your client trust you? You're now making statements, how you hate, um, you know, hate people who, who steal, et cetera. So it could really, and then ineffective assistance, and it could go down that road. Well, he didn't, she didn't defend me appropriately because she hated, you know, I'm sure that could be something that that person will bring up. So a lot of very interesting, uh, yeah, social media, you definitely have to be careful no matter what you do, I would assume. But uh, thank you for sharing um, all of those and, and the warnings for everyone, like judges, prosecutors, and defense counsel. So, so Mark, let's turn over to um, investigations. Like investigations are really important in every case because that's how a case ends up in court, right? We have depending on what service you're in, you have the CID, NCIS, OSI, or other investigative body that does an investigation. So, and investigators, you know, have tactics they use, investigative tax tactics to investigate a crime. And I know one thing that I've seen, you know, was when I was a defense counsel as well in the Air Force, they, they use the pretext phone calls or pretext text, I guess, 
Can you explain what is this? Uh, what is a pretext? I don't think everyone knows what it is. So it would be great if you can explain what is a pretext phone call or a text and as an investigative technique and just your thoughts of the use of this by investigators. Uh, yeah, Farrah, you're, you're, you're right that, you know, investigative techniques uh, that, that uh, CID or OSI or NCIS use, you know, when they're investigating cases uh, <clears throat> can be problematic. And really, you know, it's, it comes down to experience. So if you have an experienced, good investigator who's doing things right, uh, then that's a good thing. But on the other hand, if you have an inexperienced investigator, uh, who isn't isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing? You can have all sorts of problems, uh, but you know to get specifically to your question about you know what we call a pretext uh, communication it used to be called a pretext call. Now it could be anything. It could be text messages, emails, uh, social media contact. So I call it pretext uh, communications. And I'll give you once again another example from a trial uh, in which I presided to sort of explain how this works, and I'll do it in a hypothetical uh, sort of format. And that's because I've seen the same scenario in several uh, court martial trials that I've done. And the hypothetical involves a trial of an accused soldier, uh, again, charged with sexual assault. And we got two soldiers, we'll call them John and Susie. Uh, they met during their initial training. They're later stationed together in their first assignment in Hawaii. They became friends while they were in initial training and they remained friends uh, in Hawaii. But their friendship up to this point has been platonic, no romantic involvement, though they're very close to each other. So one night, uh, they both happen to go to a, the same house party thrown by a mutual acquaintance, and both of them drink heavily at the party, so much so that they decide to stay the night at the house, and, uh, and they both sleep on the living room floor. John, who's always been attracted to Susie, makes a move on her and the two wind up engaging in sexual intercourse. And the next morning, there's an awkward sort of silence uh, between the two, both recollecting what happened during the night a few days later. And after talking to her other friends about what happened, Susie decides to report the sexual assault by John uh, that evening. CID begins an investigation, and as part of that investigation, they ask Susie to make what's known as a pretext communication with John to see what he has to say about what occurred. Uh, and by the way, Farah, you know, while this pretext communication is going on, CID is there with Susie while she's sending these texts and they're even telling her, you know, what to type in these texts. So Susie agrees, she sends John a series of text messages that say things like, I don't know why you had sex with me that night. You know, I didn't want to do that. We were just friends, why did you do that? John responds to these text messages by saying things like, I'm so sorry, I can't apologize enough. I did not mean to hurt or offend you. Please let me know what I can do to make this up to you. And so Farrah, the example that I just gave you, as I said, is a relatively common scenario that I saw as a judge, uh, a pretext communication between an alleged victim and a suspect of crime. And I think it's important uh, for everyone to know, service members or anybody else out there, uh, that whatever you say to anybody, whether it's law enforcement or otherwise, can potentially be used against you uh, during a criminal trial. And so much like the social media issues we discussed, you know, uh, you really should um, be careful uh, in your communications with other people uh, about things. 
So that's an example that shows uh, at least what a pretext communication is, uh, you know, uh, during an during investigation of a, of a crime. Okay. So I'm assuming is this is legal, right? It's illegal to then use that evidence at a court martial. Yeah, the short answer is yes. Uh, pretext communications like that are, you know, under most circumstances legal. Okay. And that's be- and that's because, you know, the suspect, uh, John, on the other end of the communication, doesn't know that law enforcement is involved in the conversation. Uh, they often don't even know there is an investigation. And so as far as the suspect knows, he's just talking to an acquaintance, somebody he knows. Uh, police aren't required to read him his Miranda rights, which are rights that would apply if he was in custody. Uh, or his Article 31 rights, which is a military-specific uh, sort of version of Miranda. Uh, and they don't have to read him his Article 31 rights because there's really no coercive military context to that conversation. Okay. So, yes, it's legal. Okay. Well, how about, as you've seen in court cases that you were the presiding judge, do you think it's an effective technique for investigators to use, especially, for example, in a sexual a case like you describe, a sexual misconduct case, sexual assault, et cetera? Uh, you know, my answer is you know, sometimes yes. And again, it, it all depends on how that pretext communication uh, was done. If you have an experienced agent uh, who's doing it correctly, then it can be, it can produce some valuable evidence. But, uh, but a lot of times, and I think my general experience with it has been that it doesn't uh, produce a whole lot of, of, of helpful information. Uh, you know, and there's always there always is the danger of getting misleading evidence, uh, you know, when you do this. And, you know, if you think of a criminal investigation as an attempt to discover the truth, which is, of course, what it should be, and not simply an attempt to obtain evidence to use against a suspect, uh, then you really have to think long and hard about whether you do this um, uh, if it's the uh, if it's unreliable, you know, from the investigator. Uh, you know, then it's not going to be helpful to the uh, to the fact finder, the jury uh, in the case. And so I'll, I'll go back to the scenario I just gave um, uh, in which Susie, you know, the questions that she put in her text were, I don't know why you had sex with me last night. Why would you do that? And then John responds with, you know, apologies and saying he's sorry he hurt her. And the question is, is that evidence of wrongdoing? Is it an admission of guilt? Or is it just a person who's trying to console a friend for conduct that they later regret? And if you notice, the pretext conversation never directly accuses John of committing a crime. You know, it never says, hey, you raped me or you sexually assaulted me. It said, you know, instead it's portrayed as something that Susie did not want to happen. And so that's a poorly phrased pretext communication, in my opinion. It might have been better if the agent had said, why did you have sex with me when I told you no? Now you have a clear statement where she's informing the other person, I told you no uh, at the time. So, you know, whether it's effective or not really depends, you know, on how they do it. Uh, but the bottom line here is that, you know, John, very, in our scenario, very well may have responded differently if he understood that he was being asked about potentially doing something that amounted to a criminal offense. So that's my, that's my concern with the pretext, uh, the effectiveness yeah. of pretext conversations. Yeah, when you read that um, scenario of John, what he 
texted back. Yeah, I, when I heard it, it didn't necessarily to me mean he was admitting to that he commit a sexual offense, you know, rape, etc. So I want is and that's from a, a real case. Do you remember if, if you remember, did that person get convicted of sexual assaults in that case? Or do you remember? Well, again, I've seen that exact. I used a hypothetical there. Oh, okay. I've seen, that, I've seen that scenario in several cases, and so it, again, it all depends on how they phrase their questions as to whether or not, in my estimation, the evidence is useful. So, you know, in some of those cases, there have been convictions, uh, in other ones, uh, uh, no, and uh, you know, so you know that really gets to um, you know, how you're going to use, you know, once you have that, it's part of your investigation, right? So how, how are you now going to use that evidence, um, that you have, uh, going forward? Mm -hmm. And there's a couple, there's a couple of ways that, uh, that it is going to be used against John. And that is, you know, investigators, uh, as they continue their investigation, they're going to conduct a, you know, they're going to call John into the office and they're going to conduct, conduct an interrogation of him, uh, and during that interrogation, they're going to use those responses uh, potentially in that text conversation to to try to obtain more uh, admissions or confessions uh, from him. And then ultimately, you know, if the charges are brought to trial, uh, the text messages are going to be used as evidence by the government uh, to suggest that John admitted uh, that he had committed a sexual assault. And that he, you know, it really it's, it's evidence of what they call his consciousness of guilt. You know, why else would you apologize for committing that for doing this if, if you weren't guilty about what you did? And, of course, there's other explanations for why he might apologize. It was a friend of his and he's sorry that, that this came to be, uh, even though he doesn't think it was non-consensual. Uh, but in the end, you know, it's it's going to be up to the if it's a jury trial, it's going to be up to the jury to decide, you know, how much weight to give that that evidence. You know, and it's going to be up to the attorneys to argue what value they ought to place on it. OK, yeah. As we lawyers always say, it depends on the, all the facts. You're right. So that hypothetical, yeah. that was one piece of evidence, the text. But then what else did he consent and talk to the investigator and then say more things that may, then corroborate and make him seem more guilty. So I guess it depends on the facts, but yeah, that was very, very interesting. Yeah. With the pretext phone call. So definitely legal, generally legal, depending on how they got it. Um, and can, can be definitely prejudicial to, uh, the accused. So, um, all right, let's, I want to turn to another topic, Mark. Um, you know, I was a, in the Air Force years ago. I was a defense counsel. One of my favorite jobs I loved, I was a captain. And we had this little network of defense counsel where I, you know, in the region, I happened to be the defense counsel on the East Coast. And uh, we were always, you know, we had our little group and we'd call each other and say, can you believe what they did to my clients? And this is what the SJ, you know, we complain to each other and, you know, do get sanity checks on stuff. But one thing we were always disturbed about was um, when, when the counts, um, when the investigators would like lie to the client about something, I mean, lie to the accused, I'm sorry, about some crime they supposedly commit. And then the you know accused would come into your office and say, yeah, I confess because the investigator told me this. So I, I want to know your thoughts as a, as a, you know, JAG in the Army for, for many years, and especially as a trial judge for over 10 years. What are your thoughts about this method of by investigators of questioning a suspect when they, you know, can lie to them and, you know, make up things so that to try to get the suspect or the accused to admit to some offense? I mean, what, do you have any thoughts on this method of questioning a suspect? 
yes, but before I answer that question, Fair, you, you kind of brought up something that, that I'd like to just mention, and that is, you know, I think the military is one of the few, it's the only place that I know of where attorneys, you know, JAG officers uh, might one day be in an, an assignment where they're prosecuting cases and then the next day in an assignment where they're defending cases. Uh, you know, it's one of the few places where the attorneys kind of get experience on both sides of the aisle which I think is, you know, unbelievably healthy for the military justice system, because as those JAGs uh, become more senior in rank and they have that experience of both prosecuting and defending, uh, they understand all the perspectives uh, from each side uh, in the case when, when they're dealing with, with cases uh, at their level. And so it's a, it's a wonderful, healthy thing. And I'll tell you, when I was a judge on the bench, uh, when I was a chief trial judge in the army, we used to, you know, the, the people that I wanted to bring on as new judges were people who had experience on both sides of the aisle because I wanted that uh, in the judges that we had. Uh, you know, but to answer your, your question uh, about, uh, about uh, investigators lying to uh, suspects when they conduct inter interrogations, uh, once again, yes, that is uh, legal. Uh, investigators can provide false information. They can outright lie to a suspect uh, during the course of an interrogation. There are limits, of course, as with everything. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, you know, telling a suspect that there is evidence that there really isn't uh, is allowed. So, for example, you know, an investigator could tell a suspect, uh, hey, investigators found your DNA at the crime scene. Uh, or, hey, your, your buddy, who's the co-accused in this case, has already confessed to us and told us everything that happened. When, when none of those things are actually true, you know, all in an attempt to get uh, the suspect to then make some admissions uh, or confessions. Uh, and I'll say, my, you know, my thoughts on that, uh, even though it's legal, is that, you know, just like the pretext calls, uh, part of it depends on how experienced your, your investigators are, you know. In the hands of an inexperienced investigator, it can be very problematic when they're lying uh, to suspects and it can produce, you know, unreliable results. So, you know, I just kind of, you know, I always like to, you know, put the listeners in, in the shoes of the suspect, you know, which they probably are never going to be, hopefully. Uh, but imagine if you're truly innocent of what you're being suspected of and an investigator lies to you and tells you there's this mountain of evidence that shows that you committed the crime. And then they tell you, you know, we really don't even need your cooperation to convict you in this case. We already have enough evidence to do that. Uh, so this is your one chance to come clean to us, uh, which by the way, is not really true either. Uh, what is an inexperienced person gonna do in that situation? You know, in a situation where it appears to them that maybe they really have no choice uh, in the matter. Uh, and so, Although it can be a good uh, method when used correctly, I think there is there's a, a potential for abuse uh, in it, uh, you know, and, and, you know, again, my concern is for those investigators that don't really want to find the truth, which is what they ought to be doing, but for those investigators that only want to try to, you know, get a confession or an admission out of the person that, that they're talking to. So that really, you know, is my concern.
Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you said, you know, get it's getting to the truth and there are good investigators and bad. I mean, some it's very professional. They, they just want to get to the truth of the matter and not try to like, oh, I got this guy and he can, you know, and, and then maybe not so concerned. I mean, it's hard to believe it. But I'm sure there's not a lot of people like that, but especially in the military. But uh, but yeah, but it can produce what you said, like someone, you know, there's this concept I we hear of, but not only in the mostly in the civilian world, but also in the military of someone giving like a false confession. It's it's so hard to even believe, like, how does this even happen? Like someone confesses to something they did not commit. Can you discuss this? Like, you know, what is how does this happen to your knowledge? And what is the danger of you know, these false confessions. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the whole matter. If you had asked me uh, before I started prosecuting and defending criminal cases, whether false confessions were possible, I would have said no. And I suspect that, you know, many of your listeners might say the same thing, but the reality is uh, I've come to learn that false confessions uh, do happen. I wouldn't say it's a, you know, it happens all that often. It's, it's a rare uh, example, uh, but it certainly has been proven that uh, people do falsely confess to crimes, you know, that they never committed. And there's a lot of, uh, I think, you know, factors that go into that. There's been a lot of literature uh, from experts uh, in the area uh, about why this sort of things happens, but basically it's, you know, it's the perfect storm of factors uh, involved that, that, that lead to false confessions. You know, it, it could be interrogation tactics, uh, you know, once again, lying to suspects about what evidence there is, uh, what we call contamination uh, during an interrogation, which is, you know, an investigator supplying the suspect with details of the crime that he wouldn't otherwise know. For example, they tell the suspect, uh, hey, the victim's uh, throat was cut when the suspect never would have known that. And so as part of their confession, the suspect says, yeah, I cut her throat, right? And, 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 and devises a way that he did that. It can include, you know, intimidation from the investigators, both real and perceived by the suspect, uh, mental fatigue at the suspect. Uh, it often it happens where you have a suspect who's very young or immature, you know, not, not, not wise in the ways of the world. Uh, so there's all these factors that can combine uh, to lead to a false confession. And in fact, you know, many of your listeners may have heard about something called the Innocence Project, uh, which over the last, you know, decade or two has led to several exonerations uh, of people, even people on death row, uh, often for, for what turned out to be false confessions. And the way they discovered, you know, the way they were able to prove most of this is, you know, some of those people were convicted uh, before DNA evidence became available. Uh, DNA evidence is powerful evidence to show who might have committed a crime. And so years after convictions, when DNA evidence testing is available, uh, attorneys have been able to show that, no, this guy who actually confessed to this murder actually didn't, didn't commit the crime. And so I think there's been, you know, well over 300 people from the Innocent Project, Innocence Project uh, exonerated uh, as a result of this type of, uh, of good work by attorneys. Yeah. So, so these false confessions, uh, you know, they definitely happen. And uh, and I'll give you an example if you want. Yes, um, please do. I, I would love to hear. If, yeah, because it's just it's, you know, you hear about yeah. it and it's like it happens, like you said. But yeah, what's give me give us an example more. 
So I'll give you this example and you can, you know, whether it's a false confession or not, you, you can, you can decide for yourself. But uh, I was involved in a trial several years ago as a judge uh, in which the accused soldier admitted after about an eight hour interrogation uh, that he committed the offense. And again, this was a sexual assault case. Uh, so at the end of this interrogation, this eight hour interrogation, really the last 20 minutes of it, uh, he, he finally agreed with the investigator that he must have had sex with the victim against her will. So the government presented, you know, the evidence from that final 20 minutes uh, during their case. But then the defense, of course, had their opportunity when they presented the defense case. And the defense counsel in this particular case uh, made a good move, I think, and, and showed the other seven and a half hours of that interrogation to the members. And I'll tell you, we sat there in court. I mean, that's a full day of court, right? Wow. Uh, watching the rest of this interrogation that led up to this, you know, what the government was portraying as a as confession and admission. And fortunately for the defense in that case, you know, the entire interrogation, the entire eight hours had been videotaped, had been video recorded, uh, which is what the defense showed, you know, to the members, to the jury. And uh, it basically showed how these agents had continuously badgered, you know, the suspect until they finally broke down, finally gave in and just admitted to what it is they were they were kept trying to get him to admit to. Uh, so it's a good example of how, you know, you have an inexperienced uh, investigator who's just trying to get an admission no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so in that particular case, you know, the jury, you know, went back and, and they and they wound up uh, acquitting the soldier, found him not guilty uh, of these charges, even after the government had presented this, you know, confession uh, to the crime. So I think it's an example of where the jury said, yeah, we don't believe that's an accurate confession, right, based on what went on. And um, and, and one aspect of that, I'll tell you, which is helpful to any uh, accused in a case is the fact that they did videotape the entire thing, because, you know, if they hadn't videotaped it, uh, I'm not sure what the defense would have been able to do in that case. Uh, but because they did have a videotape, um, you know, they were able to, to, to put that evidence on and, and then convince the members that that wasn't a, a real confession. Wow, that could have saved him. I, I wonder, because I, I wonder if that's a requirement now to videotape. You would think, you know, for all services to videotape interrogations. Do, do you happen to know that? I mean, whether that's a requirement or not? Well, you know, it, it, it didn't used to be the requirement. And, you know, I was a, I was a defense counsel during my career as well. And I remember this is back in the early 2000s when I was a defense counsel and uh, and they did not videotape. They they very rarely videotaped uh, interrogations back then. And we were always left with that exact problem of, you know, the, the government presents, well, here's here's his confession. But then we were unable to show really everything else that happened uh, during the interrogation. They've fortunately reformed that a little bit. I know in the Army, at least, and I assume the other services are the same way. They now do videotape all of their, I think, mostly all of their suspect uh, interviews, interrogations. So that's a, that's a good thing for the system. Yeah, yeah, I would think. And if, you, and if there's, okay, um, yeah, that was really interesting. Thanks for sharing. That was really interesting. So it does happen, basically, for people out there. These things happen, whether it's in the military or the civilian world. There is something called a false confection, how, how unbelievable it may sound, but it, it happens due to a lot of reasons that we can't comprehend, unless you're in that situation. So, Mark, um, I, I want to now go on to another uh, one of our another topic um, and that is again 
investigators when they read the Article 31 rights to uh, military members. There, there is an instinct from when I was a defense counsel to even now when I, you know, practice law as a civilian counsel, there's that instinct of uh, you hear people say, well, you know, you know, because the first question, did you talk to the investigators? Yeah. And there's an instinct that a lot of people, and I don't, I don't know what percentage, seem to want to, when they're read their rights, suspected of an offense, they want to, you know, whether they're guilty, innocent, whatever, they want to talk to them. They waive their rights and they say, yeah, I'll talk to you. They don't ask for a lawyer. And because um, they seem to be concerned about, oh, I'm going to look guilty, so I better try to convince them I'm not guilty. Do you, what are your thoughts on this, Mark, as a, you know, a tr- trial judge, as a, as a JAG? What are your thoughts about military members? And, and now, you're a def- now you're a civilian uh, defense counsel, right? What are your thoughts in general about military members, you know, just talking to investigators with, rather than asking for a lawyer? Right. Well, first of all, I agree with you 100 percent that uh, lots of people, even most people, in my experience, uh, will agree to speak with investigators even after those investigators have advised them that they're suspected of committing a crime and that they have a right to consult an attorney uh, before speaking or a right to say nothing at all. And uh, it is kind of amazing, an amazing phenomenon that people would would do that. Uh, but I think it's, you know, like you suggested, that it's just sort of, you know, human nature that uh, they think if, if I invoke my rights, I'm going to look guilty here. And maybe if I explain to this investigator what happened, you know, it'll all go away and he'll believe me. Uh, well, guess what? That's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's not all going away. And uh, the agent Again, most are, are there to see if they can get you to confess to the crime. Uh, you know, that's why when you tell them your story, they're going to keep talking to you. They're not going to stop with the story you tell them. So, uh, and believe it or not, Farrah, I've even had situations where when I was a defense counsel in the military, uh, I, I had seen a client before they went to their CID interrogation. Uh, and... And I clearly advise them, hey, do not speak with these investigators, invoke your rights, tell them you're represented by me, you know, tell, refer the investigators to me, but do not talk to them. And then only weeks later, when I get the charge sheet in the court martial <laughs> packet, uh, I find out that my client didn't follow my advice, right? And yeah. uh, instead waived the rights, submitted to interrogation, you know, and, and afterwards I said, why did you talk to them? I told you not to. And they said, oh, I just thought, you know, I thought I could explain it to them what had happened, you know. Oh, and so yeah. it really is this very strong human desire, you know, I think to explain yourself uh, that uh, that causes people to do that. And the reality is uh, that your denials about committing the crime to the investigator aren't going to help. Even if you're absolutely innocent, you are 100 percent better off getting an attorney to represent you. If you have evidence or statements that, that show you're innocent, then your attorney is going to be able to help you with that. He's going to be or he or she's going to be in the best position to explain to the investigators your command or ultimately to the jury if it goes to trial, you know, why it is that you didn't commit this offense. Uh, but the bottom line is a suspect who's inexperienced, you know, in law and investigations is always going to be outmatched, you know, by that trained investigator. Yeah. 
Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I no no defense counsel would ever say the opposite. Or, or or in cases there might be a case where okay, you go right away. You say you want a lawyer. You go to your defense counsel, whether it's the military one or a civilian, and that person may say, oh, okay, yeah, we need, you know, we may want to go in there together and answer because it's to clear something. You know, there could be a case where you go with your defense counsel. I mean, I'm sure you've seen cases like that where they go together and then. The client makes a, a statement and then maybe the matter's cleared up. That could be also be a tactic. You're with your lawyer. If, if you, you know, if that's appropriate, I don't know. That might be a way to do it. But don't go your, your advice to don't do, never uh, agree to answer questions. Ask for a lawyer and then get help no. from a lawyer first. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll get and I'll give you and I'll give you just, you know, the one example where I can usually think that it's sometimes in your best interest to actually say something is, you know, when when you have a senior officer client. Maybe they're being investigated for TDY fraud and there's a good explation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say TDY, I mean travel expense. Yeah, you know, yeah, fraud. the military. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, yeah uh, temporary duty assignment or whatever that's. Or te- yeah, TDY. That's what that we say in the duty. Air Force. Yeah, temporary duty. Yeah, and so so that senior officer is kind of in a position where, look, he's got to kind of explain what happened or you know, criminal investigation or no, it's, it's not going to be good for him or her, right? Mm-hmm. But even then, you know, getting an attorney to help you explain that to the command or the investigators is the way to go, not doing it on your own. Yes. So, yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Well, I'm glad to hear you. You have everyone listening. We, you've got a, a military officer um, who was 10 years as a judge also agreeing that you should ask for a lawyer. So, okay, Mark, very, very, always, I find this like fascinating and having you share your stories of what you've seen or, or hypotheticals from the courtroom. Um, so let's switch over to a topic that's really been a very hot topic in the military for, I'd say the past decade. And that is uh sexual assault cases. Um, It's all over the news, etc. You know, the civilian news, military news. So, and I know a lot of these cases, you know, when you're talking about sexual assaults, you know, there's an element of like the issue of consent. Um, Can you just discuss this issue of consent as it pertains to sexual assault cases, Mark? Uh, right. And, you know, and you'll notice uh, that most of the examples I've given are sexual assault, uh, you know, cases that we've talked about. So yes, that's, that's because true. <laughs> that's because they're so prevalent uh, in the military now. You know, when I was a prosecutor and a defense counsel and this was back, you know, um, in the first 10 years or so of my assi- of my uh, career in the military. So we're talking roughly uh, 1992 to 2003. Uh, Sex-related offenses probably accounted for about 20% or less of our criminal docket. Uh, In the last several years, in the Army at least, over 50% of the cases that are sent to trial uh, involve sex-related offenses. And so that's a huge uh, increase in sex offense trials, in sex offense trials, and it's uh, it's directly related to both congressional and societal uh, emphasis on sex assault in the military, on school campuses, and really in society uh, at large. Everyone's heard of the hashtag MeToo movement. Uh, Congress has enacted several reforms of the military justice system, including uh, multiple redrafts of of Article 120 of the UCMJ, and that's the the military's main sex offense statute, Uh, and and then some other things uh, that have happened as well. But, But regarding that issue of consent, Um, You know, when Article 20 was uh, first reformed back in 2007, and it's gone through several iterations uh, since then, um, 
it has become really easier and easier for a military prosecutor to both charge and to prove a sexual offense. And so I'll, I'll take one example, and there's all kinds of different sexual offenses that can be charged, but really the most commonly charged uh, offense in my experience is what's known as sexual assault without consent. And so uh, that charge requires only that the prosecutor prove a sexual act occurred and the alleged victim did not consent to the sexual act. And the term consent is defined by statute as a freely given agreement to the conduct at issue. And by the way, the definition of consent also states that lack of verbal or physical resistance does not constitute consent. So under this criminal offense and its, its definition of consent, an offense can occur even if the alleged victim never tells the accused that she does not want to engage in sexual activity and even if she fails to resist in any way. If the alleged victim later says, you know, I did not want to have sex on that occasion, no matter the actual circumstances, that is enough for a prosecutor to bring charges and to prosecute the case. And, you know, by the way, that's different from what the law was prior to 2007, which allowed for an inference that a victim did consent to the sexual act if she, you know, didn't uh, make her lack of consent, you know, known uh, through, through words or, or, or acts. And so I say all that, you know, that background to, to that particular offense to say, you know, you can argue that's a good change for the law for the protection of, of sexual assault victims. And, and, and I agree that that argument has merit, uh, but it's also undeniable uh, that many innocent service members, I think, have been brought to trial uh, for sexual assault as a result of the current emphasis on sex assault in the easing of the government's burden of proof in these cases. And, uh, and, and frankly, convening authorities and their staff judge advocates, the people who you know, send these cases to trial uh, have shown a propensity to send most of these allegations to trial, even when they have reservations about the ability to obtain a conviction. And so to me, that's, that's problematic. And that, you know, that issue of, uh, of lack of consent in the way the government is, is allowed to prove it is, is results in a lot more, a lot more trials and an easing of the government's burden. Wow. That, I mean, that's actually, yeah, that's, Definitely interesting. That um, so you know to explain this a little further. Is there maybe a hypothetical or something you could talk about a case maybe you've seen in court where this issue of consent how it affected the accused in a case? Uh, yeah, uh, in fact, uh, I guess this was it's been several years uh, since I had this case, but I did preside over a trial. Uh, of a, of a same charge, sexual assault without consent. Um, and it involved uh, two soldiers, a male soldier and a female soldier. They had both gone out on a date. Uh, and then afterwards, they went back to the female soldier's room. And then while they're in the room, they start kissing and they begin to engage in other, you know, foreplay. According to both, both soldiers, uh, both the female and the male, this was all consensual sexual activity. Uh, the charged sexual act occurred just a few moments after what everyone agreed had been consensual sexual behavior. Uh, the male soldier performed a sex act on the female soldier, which she later claimed was done without her consent. 
But according to her own testimony at trial, she did not manifest her non-consent verbally or otherwise, which means she didn't tell the other soldier, the male soldier, that she didn't want to engage in the sexual act and she did not physically resist. Instead, what she said at trial was that she simply froze when he started the sexual act. And so in that case, you know, the accused proceeded from what was otherwise consensual sexual activity into a sexual act that his date later claimed was non-consensual. And those allegations and subsequent charges went through a criminal investigation. They were reviewed by a prosecutor. They were investigated by a preliminary hearing officer. They were reviewed by a staff judge advocate who is the senior legal advisor to the command. Meaning authority, a general officer in command who sent the case to a general court martial. In the end, uh, after a jury trial, the accused was fully acquitted uh, of the charges. And I'll tell you, Farrah, this is not the only time I've heard a story similar to what I just told you in a criminal case. I've had several uh, scenarios that were similar to that uh, in trial. Getting back to that same issue I just talked about, that the law doesn't require somebody to actually say or resist you know, a sexual act you know, before a prosecutor can bring the charges to trial. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it shows really, you know, I think it's obviously problematic for a service member in that situation, but it also is problematic for the government, right? Yeah. How do you as the government refuse to send that case to trial when all the elements are apparently met, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Even, though, even though you know that you probably aren't going to get a conviction uh, when you send it there. Uh, so that to me, you know, it, although, you know, a reform couches a reform to the military justice system, and maybe it is, uh, but it certainly has some negative uh, impacts as well. Wow. Yeah. I, the way they wrote that law. I mean, obviously, no one likes sexual predis- predators or people who commit sexual assault, but the way that law is written, it seems like it's. Yeah, it forces the government to prefer charges. And, it, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of innocent, you know, individuals who, you know, I don't know, maybe some even convicted, I guess it depends. But so I, I guess like the takeaway, I mean, we're discussing this because we want our listeners, you know, who hopefully are the military community, people in the military, civilians, etc. You know, Colonel retired Mark Britt is as educating based on his you know, 10 years of experience as a, as a judge, as well as, you know, 20, 30 years as a, as a judge advocate in the army, but how do then members, you know, get, get consent? I mean, honestly, you know, before engaging in some type of, you know, sexual activity, like what is, what, what's your advice? Like what type of, you know, what should a member do? do? It sounds like a crazy question, but um, honestly, based on this law, it's like, it's like a warning to people, right? Yeah, so, you know, among uh, other attorneys uh, that I know, we we sometimes sort of half-jokingly say that, you know, two parties should enter into a written contract uh, before they begin to have sex. And and I say half-jokingly because, you know, it is undoubtedly true that uh, you, uh, if you're you're engaging in any type of sexual behavior with another person, that you make sure – that the other person has consented to what you're doing. Don't just assume it. Uh, make sure because you don't want to find yourself in a situation, you know, where the other person legitimately didn't want to do it, but, but you know, felt, you know, they had to or, or something along those lines. And then you wind up in a criminal investigation yourself. So don't do that. Um, you know, be careful. 
you know, in, in what you do. It's certainly a different world than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And again, uh, I, I'm not uh, absolutely I'm not condoning sexual assaults. I hope nobody interprets my comments that way. No, no, uh, of course not. I, I'm, yeah. I'm always just concerned with, um, you know, the way in which these cases are, are going to be proven uh, later. So, but the bottom line is you're right. Service members uh, you need to make sure they've got consent. And, you know, the Army, at least I'm sure the other services do a lot of training these days uh, related to sexual assault. That we have, the Army, we have a SHARP, we call the SHARP program, uh, which, uh, which does a lot of training, required training of service members. So they get some of this training, and I hope they're, pay, hope they're paying attention to it. There are, are some aspects of the training that I've seen that aren't helpful, but, but overall I think it's a good program and, and it really helps uh, service members. Yeah. And no way is any, I mean, we are not in any way, cond- obviously condoning sexual assaults and criminals, but we're just discussing the, how these things can somehow turn out to be like have an, an innocent person, you know, be convicted. And in fact, um, yeah. And, and maybe there's like when they were, you know, writing that law, maybe there's psychologists who testified that some people would, when they are like, you know, I'm just going to generalize and say the female is being sexually assaulted. Some people maybe do freeze and aren't able to, you know, that could be a reaction, which is why they probably put that in there. So that's why the, the, you know, the other person, the male or whatever, um, generally should maybe get verbal consent, you know, based on that, because maybe you don't know the reaction of the person, they freeze up and don't say anything or don't do anything, right? So get verbal, that's something that makes it very clear. And uh, which brings me to Mark, actually, a very important question, follow up on this is, what happens though, you know, I'm saying, hey, you should get consent before, but what if like the, the you know, again, generalizing it's the, the male, you know, soldier is intoxicated and even maybe the alleged victim is intoxicated and you're not thinking of getting consent or whatever. How does intoxication, um, how does this relate to the offense of sexual assault where one or both parties are intoxicated? Uh, yes, and... I can't put an accurate percentage on it, but I don't think it would be uh, untruthful to say, you know, 90% of these sex related cases that I see or that I saw when I was a judge uh, or have alcohol involved. Yeah. And, you know, alcohol, everybody knows, uh, diminishes your capacity to reason, <laughs> to, to think straight. It loosens your inhibitions. And uh, so it, it is a complicating factor. It also, you know, obviously, um, creates problems in communication uh, and, and consent issues as well. One thing I will say is, and this is one of the negative aspects of sharp training that I've occasionally seen, and that is, uh, you know, a sharp trainer telling service members that if you drink any alcohol, you cannot consent to sexual activity. One drink, one beer, you can't consent. That's not true. That's not what the law says. Uh, the law, you know, understands it's a spectrum. Uh, and so you certainly could drink enough alcohol where you didn't have the ability to consent anymore. Uh, but having one drink or even two is not, is, it doesn't mean you can't consent. Uh, but it, you know, it's obviously a, prob- a problem. And I've seen it mostly as a problem in cases. And unfortunately, I've seen way too many of these where there's evidence that and it's usually the victim uh, has blacked out uh, during the episode. And when, when I say blackout, what I mean is 
they don't remember. They fail to record memories about what, what occurred. So they either they don't remember the whole episode or they only remember parts of it. And that is a, is a very complicating factor because now the jury is going to have to decide when all that evidence is presented, you know, what happened? You know, if you, if you don't remember what happened, then, then what happened, right? Uh, was it consensual? Was, was the accused mistaken as to whether or not you consented to sexual activity? Um, it's, a, it's a problematic uh, situation. And so uh, I guess the, the, the learning uh, point here is do not drink uh, to excess. Do not drink to the point where you are like this. You know, I always tell my kids the same thing, which is, you know, when they went off to college a few years back, you know, if you're going to be drinking, make sure you got a lot of friends around you and that people are watching out for you and do not drink to the point where you don't know what's going on. So that's good advice uh, because otherwise bad things happen. Yeah, very good advice. To, yeah, and that's why I've so enjoyed listening to all this wisdom and all the your stories of, you know, courtroom and the law of what happens in these situations. So, yeah, you should. If you're listening, I mean, this is very good advice for you to, you know, protect you from, you know, being the you know, basically court-martialed and please share it with, um, you know, people, you know, this information, this podcast. So um, lots of great, great information from your, your extensive experience, Mark. Finally, you know, Mark, I want to, um, you know, wrap up the podcast. I'm taking a lot of your time here, but I want to wrap it up with one question. I always ask attorneys. Um, the last question I ask is always, you know, the name of the podcast is military law and life matters, because as we know, right, law matters affect your life matters. They're intertwined. So, Based on, you know, everything you discussed, is there a life lesson you can share as it pertains to, you know, military justice and just cases you've seen in the courtroom? You know, just one life lesson that would be beneficial to our listeners today, Mark. Well, you know, if I, uh, if, if you'll allow me to, I'll, uh, instead of giving a law answer to that question, I'll give a general military answer to that question, which is one of my favorite pieces of advice to give to folks I know in the military. And that is, you know, don't burn your bridges. Uh, The military is a small place. Uh, The JAG Corps that I served in is is even smaller. Uh, And if you stay in it long enough, you know, all the people that you see at one assignment, you're going to see again as you move up through the ranks uh, and become more senior. And so throughout your career, I know you're going to have, you know, conflicts with other people, you know, whether they're professional or personal, uh, but remain professional, remain personable. Uh, don't let that uh, be a thorn in anyone's side because uh, you just don't want to do that with, with other people. You're going to be much better off in your career and your life if you don't do that. You don't burn the bridges uh, that you've created behind you. Good advice. And that applies to people the you know lawyers or anyone in the military anyone in life so very good advice to end this yeah. podcast um mark so thank you so much for your time for all the wisdom you shared all the you know very useful information for all our listeners and uh and i i know you know i've already discussed your background but you you know recently retired and you have your own law practice and i'm going to link you know your law practice and your bio in the show notes so if anyone never need to reach out to Colonel Retired Mark Bridges, they can do so. So thank you again for all your time. And uh, I look forward to perhaps in the future chatting with you again. Thank you so much, Mark. All right. Thank you, Fair. It, it was a pleasure being on the podcast. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with attorney Mark Bridges. He shared a lot of valuable information from his experience as an Army Jack for 30 years and specifically from his experiences being a military judge in the U.S. Army for over 10 years. Um, Mark Bridges gave examples about how social media has been used against military members in the courtroom and how it can be used against anyone, um, you know, military or not. Pretext phone calls, he discussed pretext phone calls, pretext texts that are used as um, methods and in investigations, interrogation techniques by investigators. Um, he also discussed why you should always ask for a lawyer when you're re when your rights. And um, he also discussed the very important uh, issue regarding the issue of consent in court martial cases involving sexual assault. So he, he talked also about intoxication and how he's seen that. I, I think he said about 90% of cases involving sexual assault involve some type of alcohol use by the service member. So, I mean, he also said, it, and I'd also reiterate it, you know, it's important if you're going to go out drinking, have a buddy with you, um, someone who's maybe not drinking like the designated driver. So not only will it protect you from DUIs, but also, you know, if you're intoxicated and then you know, you're somehow end up with someone, basically, it, it could lead to a very bad result where you're charged with a sexual assault, you know, maybe, you know, sometimes not intentional based on your, you know, your belief of whether the person consented. So um, very, very important issues, please like use the buddy system if you're going out a drink. So again, designated buddy, someone's going to have you have your back and protect you so you don't do something stupid and can possibly land in jail for a very long time. You know, sexual assault is a very serious issue. And we certainly have sympathy for anyone who's been a victim of sexual assault. It could have, you know, devastating, it does have devastating impacts on victims that really are lifelong. So very, very serious issue. Our conversation really tried to address some of the legal issues in the courtroom based on how the law has been written that sometimes ends up with innocent people being charged with a crime they did not commit. So, um, you know, regardless of what legal issue you're facing, I always say, you know, it's good to get an expert opinion, you know, talk to someone. If you're facing a legal difficult legal issue in your life, consult with an attorney who specializes in the matter, will give you insight into the legal issue and discuss with you the strategies to how to maybe go about resolving the matter. Ignoring a problem does not make it go away, no matter how difficult it might seem. You know, confronting it head on with smart counsel on your side will give you peace of mind and give you closure one way or the other. So um, that's my advice to you. You know, talk to an expert so you can kind of get on with your life one way or the other. Finally, I'd like to ask you to please share the podcast with people who can benefit. If you can, rate it five stars on iTunes. If you'd like, write a review. But please, you know, this helps the military community become aware of the podcast so they can also listen and learn and perhaps take away some important information that can help them. So appreciate if you can take a minute to do that. And I always say, and I will end it with this, remember, never, ever give up because there is always hope. I look forward to talking to you next time. Take care.